0: It's good to see each and every one of you. Today is entitled, Proof of Christianity. The primary proof of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There are other proofs, of course, including his many miracles, the miracles of his disciples, fulfilled prophecies, his wonderful teachings, his living in our hearts who believe in him. But the primary basic proof is his own resurrection. Had he not risen from the dead, he would have seemed to have been false. He prophesied his resurrection then he died for our sins, <clears throat> then he rose from the dead. It's not just a hope that we have that he did that, it's solidly established in historical proof. Look, for example, <clears throat> what Dr. Luke said in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Verse 3, about the resurrection. Very careful, accurate historian. 1-3 of Acts. Speaking of Christ, he said, to whom also he showed himself alive after his suffering by many, as the King James says it, infallible proofs. Some would translate it certain proofs. Or maybe simply many proofs, not merely evidence, but proofs they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had come alive again. Now go with me, if you would, over to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice how he establishes the resurrection of Christ. Beginning in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. Because I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The scriptures, you see, had prophesied that this was going to happen. But here's the thing, and that he was seen by Cephas, another name for Peter, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen of over 500 brothers all at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present time, but some are fallen asleep, some have died. After that, he was seen by James. Then, by all the apostles, last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, also. Can you imagine all these personal witnesses, the apostles, and hundreds of others? People who were willing to go out and die for Jesus, knowing that he was indeed alive. As I was thinking about this, I thought, surely we better say a word about Thomas. It's been suggested Thomas was permitted to doubt so that we do not need to doubt. No doubt Thomas was present at the crucifixion. I believe he was traumatized when he saw Jesus Christ die that horrible death on the cross. And when the other apostles told him that he was alive and they'd seen him, he wasn't with them at the time, he basically said, no way am I going to believe that. He felt he'd been duped before, but he was not going to fall for it again. And yet this was hard for him. In fact, he demanded absolute proof before he would accept that Jesus was alive again. Jesus gave him that absolute proof. You can read about it in John 20. In fact, let's look at it at this time, John 20 beginning with verse 24. 2024 20, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. That first resurrection night, Easter night. Therefore the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I can see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and push my hand into his side... I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas, this time with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. That's interesting. He can pass through doors and walls and what have you in this new body. And he stood in the midst of them and he said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and look at my hands. Reach here your hand and push it into my side. And do not be faithless, but believing. You see, he gave him the absolute proof he demanded. And Thomas answered and he said to him, My Lord and my God. He believed in his lordship and that he was God to be worshipped. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and still have believed. And many other signs, truly, Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book of John. But these, that is, the signs, the miracles in the book of John, they are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so, as was said, Thomas was given absolute proof. The doubter became a believer, so that we, too, need never doubt. Since the proof is absolute, since the fact is certain that Jesus is alive again, the question might be asked, well, how how come some people don't believe it? I believe a very good answer is found in the book of John. Back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, This is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Because everyone who does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. <clears throat> Why do people reject the proof? Because of the willful blindness of their darkened heart. It's not that the proof isn't there, it's that they willfully decide not to believe it. The same is true with belief in God. From Romans 1.20, we see God has revealed himself through his creation, and yet people have refused to believe it because of the willful blindness of the heart is why people refuse to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, thinking of his resurrection, it's expressed in a very interesting way in Acts 26, part of the message of the Apostle Paul to King Agrippa and Festus. Acts 26, beginning in verse 22, in this marvelous message and witness, he says this, Therefore, having obtained help from God, I continue to this very day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer And that he should be the first who should rise from the dead and should show light to the people and to the Gentiles. Notice Paul slips in this thought that Christ was the first one to rise from the dead. And when you think about it, that's interesting. Why? Well, because in the Old Testament, you read about a resurrection or two. In the New Testament, you read about at least three resurrections, including the resurrection of Lazarus, including the widow's son at Nain, including Jairus' daughter, and there were probably others. How then could it be said that Jesus was the first who should rise from the dead? He's the first one who rose with a glorious indestructible new body. Lazarus and all the others had to die again. Jesus rose never to die physically again. In fact, in Acts 6:14, it tells us that he was raised and that we too will be raised. You see, he's the first one with the new body, but all believers in him someday kind of blows your mind to think about it. Someday they too will rise with a similar body to that of the Lord Jesus. One of the verses that very clearly expresses this is found in the book of Philippians. Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 21, speaking of Christ, who shall change the body of our humiliation, King James says, our vile body, (laughs) so that it may be fashioned like to his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he's the first. He has a glorious body, and someday all believers, too, will receive a body like his. But he's the first one to get this body. Picking up on what this new body will be like, let's go back to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. We already saw there in Philippians that it would be glorious, This is repeated again in this chapter. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection from the dead. Actually, the Greek says, from among the dead ones. It is planted in rottenness. It is raised in incorruption, that which is not subject to decay. So the new body is not subject to decay. It won't get rotten when it dies, but it won't die. It is planted in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So you see, it's going to be a glorious body, ours. And Jesus is. It is planted in weakness, it is raised in power. A dead body is very weak indeed. (laughs) Can't breathe, heart doesn't beat, can't move. How powerless, but it's to be raised in power. It's planted a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Now, when it says a spiritual body, it doesn't mean kind of ethereal. It's talking about that it will not have the sin nature. We all struggle with the sin nature in this life, do we not? But that new body will have a spiritual body. If you look in chapter 2 of this book, 1 Corinthians, and verses 14 and 15, you'll see how the word spiritual is used in that sense. And that is the same sense in which it is used here. It will be spiritual in that it will not have a fallen nature. To me, that's one of the greatest things of all, of this new body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And Besides that, it's going to be immortal without ever being able to die again. Verse 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption... And this mortal, that which is subject to death, must put on immortality, that which will not, which cannot die. And so Jesus' body was like all this, and he's the prototype of the body that all believers will receive. And what a beautiful description of it is here in these verses Also, go with me over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. We heard this on the radio, too, when we came today. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So the new body will not have to suffer pain. We will not cry. There will be no more death. Another thing about the new body is very clearly revealed in the book of Luke. Last chapter, verse 34 of chapter 24. The last chapter of Luke verse 34 saying the Lord is risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon and they told what things were done in the road how he was known of them in the breaking of bread you can read the first part of the chapter see what they're talking about they had just seen him they returned to Jerusalem and they witnessed to what they had seen and as they thus spoke Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and he says to them, Peace be to you. But they were terrified and scared and supposed that they'd seen a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Now get this. He said, Look at my hands and my feet. They no doubt saw the prince. That it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. So, in this new body, there's flesh, there's bones, and yet it can appear and disappear. Notice no mention of blood. New body does not need blood. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that goes along that line too that's often misused. But the new body is flesh and bones, not flesh and blood. Doesn't need the blood. (laughs) And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they yet believed not for joy, and they wondered, he said to them, Do you have here any food? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. Ghosts don't eat. Here he is eating. He has flesh and bones. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus had some enemies that did not believe in the resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. And they made up a story. Could have been true. They thought they would show how impossible it was that there'd be a resurrection. Thought they got him in a logical corner They said there was this guy, and he married this lady, and he died. Well, the Old Testament says then his brother should marry the widow. So they said the first one died, then, like it says, his brother did marry her. But then he died. And there was another brother, and he married her. And he died. And all in all, there were seven brothers. They all married her. Whose wife, then, will she be? They all had her wife, so they really thought they had him trapped here. Let's see how he resolved this, how wisely he responded. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe, Whose wife shall she be of the seven? Because all of them had her as wife. Jesus answered and he said to them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. (laughs) He accused them of two things. They don't know what the Bible says and they don't know how powerful God really is. Because in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. So he said, okay, in the resurrection, there is no such thing as marriage. They're like the angels, which do not marry, which are, we might say, asexual. And so he shot down their argument. Yes, there is a resurrection. It's established in Scripture It's established by the historical reality of Jesus coming alive again. Now, there's something else that usually isn't dealt with very much. We've been talking basically about the resurrection of Christians, resurrection of the just. But actually, the Bible speaks also of the resurrection of the unjust, those who are not godly, those who don't believe in God. Go with me to John chapter 5, if you would. We find in verses 28 and 29, words of Jesus himself, Do not be amazed at this, because the hour is coming in the which all who are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come out. They who have done good to the resurrection of life. And they who have done bad, evil, to the resurrection of damnation. (laughs) So he talks about a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. Going back to the book of Acts, Paul speaking before Felix, the governor, Acts chapter 24 Verse 15. Last of the verse. There shall be a resurrection of the dead. Both of the just and unjust. (laughs) So the believers will be raised and the unbelievers who are unjust and don't have the forgiveness. They too will be raised. So Jesus and Paul very clearly speak of the resurrection not only of the just, but of the unjust as well. Now, having said that, let's go back to what we've called the primary scripture for today, back in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. An amazing three verses in chapter twelve of Daniel, prophetical verses. Beginning in Daniel 12:2 we find this And many of them who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake up some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt So there'll be a resurrection you see not only of the just but the unjust as well prophesied centuries before Jesus came some to shame and everlasting contempt. And since we're here, let's look at some of the other amazing prophecies very quickly. Verse 3, And they who be wise shall shine like the brightness of the expanse, and they who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Also we find in the book of Proverbs chapter 11 verse 30 and I'd like to read this from the Amplified Bible. The fruit of the uncompromisingly righteous is a tree of life and he who is wise captures human lives for God. (laughs) Talks about witnessing and help people become Christians. As a fisher of men he gathers and Receives them for eternity. And it gives some Bible verses here. Great thing to bring people to God. Last two verses in the book of James. Talks about helping a fellow Christian who's wandered away. Not following God like they should. And how we can help them. And so that goes right in with Proverbs 11:30. But then the fourth verse back in Daniel 12. But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. In the last century and a quarter, We've seen this remarkably being fulfilled. Many running to and fro. (laughs) How about all the freeways? How about the airplanes? Hopping from country to country in a few hours. Many shall run to and fro. There are a whole lot of people doing this. And knowledge, it says, shall be increased. Consider in the last century and a quarter the enormous increase in knowledge. Think of the technological advances. Think of smartphones, for example. It's amazing the increase in knowledge which has been experienced. But Daniel knew all about it. God revealed it to him. All these wonderful things that he mentions here in Daniel 12. And so we come back to the main thought, the proof of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, seen by dozens of witnesses experienced in their lives even to death to proclaim that glorious victory. And so it's up to us then to receive Him, to trust Him in every aspect of life. Life sometimes can get pretty tough, but Jesus is tougher. (laughs) And whatever the problem may be, we may trust in Jesus. He is God. He is Lord. He came from the dead. This is witnessed and proven. And as our hearts are open to him, we receive it and we trust in him. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this glorious truth of his wonderful resurrection. We thank you that it's not just something we wistfully hope for, but it's something established in history, in time, something experienced by people, something into which we may tap as we trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are living. Thank you that you conquered death in the grave. Thank you that you promise total victory to all who trust in you, not only in the hereafter, but victory here, even in this world. Thank you so much. We praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.